Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and partner, John Harney. John, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are things with you, Bob? Oh, not too bad. Uh, we are coming to you today. We're recording on Inauguration Day uh, in the United States. Uh, so this could be the last History Respawn podcast. We'll we'll wait and see. Uh, and uh, we wanted to come to you today to kind of talk about future plans for History Respawn, the YouTube series, and then also to discuss uh, the release of the Assassin's Creed movie, which came out about a month ago here in the States, and I got a chance to see it, uh, but John hasn't seen it yet. So I'm going to kind of do my best to describe uh, the game, or not the game, gosh, here I am already messing up, uh, uh, to describe the movie uh, and uh, kind of feel John's questions uh, about the experience of uh, actually seeing this uh, very important uh, historical video game making its transition to the silver screen. Uh, so, John, are you ready? I'm ready. And I, you know, I do think that January 20th, 2017 is the date that it's an ideal day to discuss a three and a half week old uh, video game movie. That's, <laughs> that's my uh, that's my priority for the day. And something just, just to, to take. Be, yeah. yeah, something to take our minds off of current events. And just to be clear, it's not that we'll end the project in protest. It's just as long as there's a world in which to podcast, we will podcast. That's the <laughs> that's the connection. <laughs> uh, okay, well, uh, with that, if you are not interested in spoilers uh, for this movie, maybe jump ahead. Uh, let's say about ten minutes, uh, and then, then that way you won't uh, you won't hear anything uh, about the film in case you haven't seen uh, the movie yet. Okay, so the Assassin's Creed movie starring Michael Fassbender is a movie that I think is really close. Uh, at least in its presentation, uh, in its kind of overall heart, to the video games. Uh, but in that sense, it also makes for a really boring and terrible movie. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the film uh, stars uh, Michael Fassbender, who uh, is essentially uh, a child of uh, two assassins uh, who ends up losing uh, both of his parents early on in life. Uh, he spends... Uh, most of his early adult life uh, kind of uh, bouncing in and out of trouble. Eventually, he ends up in prison uh, for murder. We don't get any specifics on that murder, uh, but he is scheduled for execution. Uh, near the beginning of the movie, he is, uh, is subjected to, I think it's lethal injection. I think that's how he's uh, killed. Uh, but instead of being killed, he ends up uh, waking up in a uh, Abstergo building. Uh, and I believe the building, I want to say it's in Madrid, I don't know for sure. I need to go back and check that out. But anyways, yeah, he wakes up uh, in the hands of Abstergo uh, and wakes up to the face of uh, Marion Cotillard, uh, who is working as one of Abstergo's uh, main scientists on uh, the Animus Project and attempting to uh, use the lives of people held in this Abstergo facility, uh, use their past lives in order to discover uh, the Peace of Eden. Uh, in this case, I think... There's no reference made to pieces of Eden, but just a single piece of Eden. So in that broad setup, you've got all of the basic parts of the game series uh, translated to the screen. You've got the assassins, uh, you've got the pieces of Eden, or at least a piece of Eden, uh, and then you've got Abstergo, uh, the Knights Templar. Uh, so it's actually pretty interesting uh, that they are managing to just you know take that story and try to transition it to the film. So after that point, 
the uh, Michael Fassbender's uh, character, he's uh, placed into the Animus, which in the film uh, is not simply a um, simply a you know a cot in which he <laughs> lays down on and goes into his past lives, but instead it is uh, uh, this huge contraption. It's a bit like Glados uh, with uh, a suction cup at the end of it, and it it, it, it takes a hold of um, Michael Fassbender so that when he's in the Animus, he's actually physically performing uh all of the deeds that he is actually uh living through uh in his past life. Uh so the past life he goes back to is uh, uh in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. Uh he plays an assassin and the assassins during the uh Spanish Inquisition they are attempting to help uh the remaining Muslim rulers uh to hold on to power. Uh, or at least to uh, keep on uh, hold of some of their power in order to protect uh, a piece of Eden, in order to protect this kind of object of great power. And of course, uh, the Templars, the actual historical Templars, are there uh, persecuting minorities, attempting to remove the Muslim population uh, from Spain at this time. And uh, essentially, Michael Fassbender is thrown into this uh, situation uh, without any context, uh, there's no historical context whatsoever, uh, and is left to basically do all of the things that we're familiar with from playing the Assassin's Creed series, uh, or, you know, running and uh, stabbing. Uh, now, what's funny is that there's actually not much stealth uh, in his Assassin's work. Uh, <laughs> in fact, all of his um, Assassin's activities in his past life are what we would refer to as high profile. Uh, in the Assassin's Creed series, in other words, just kind of big brawls between uh, assassins and Templars, uh, really uh, stupendous assassinations, which are, you know, not even close to being under the cover of darkness or trying to be covert at all. Uh, but I'd say that in the action sequences in the past, which unfortunately are kind of few and far between, it does kind of lend itself very much to the feeling that you get when you play the video game. There's this kind of very fast-paced sequence uh, near the middle of the film in which uh, Michael Fassbender's ancestor is being chased throughout uh, Madrid, uh, you know, medieval Madrid, early modern Madrid, whatever you want to call it. And it has a feeling and it's shot in very the same way that you would experience a chase sequence during one of the Assassin's Creed games. And um, then, of course, throughout the uh, historical sequences, there's uh, plenty of other references to the games. Uh, there's a lot of uh, eagles. Uh, there's a lot of eagles screeching. Uh, and uh, there's also a lot of uh, jumping and diving off of buildings. Uh, and so I think, you know, in those historical sequences and uh, throughout most of the action sequences, it feels true to the games, which I think, you know, you wouldn't expect this film to be in any way trying to be historically accurate or trying to encourage any sort of uh, historicity. But in terms of the way it feels to play Assassin's Creed, I think they were very true to that experience uh, with this movie. Very cool. Like, And that kind of builds, actually, Bob, it's one of the first questions I have for you, because personally for me, the Assassin's Creed games always feel like there's like a lot going on. And I like, I like you know, being a pirate in the Caribbean, um, you know, I think back to the first two games or the first couple of games and just being in this very clear historical setting and the animus stuff always felt goofy to me and in later games although especially after Assassin's Creed 2 that whole stuff gets crazy and weird and interesting it always seemed like a bizarrely broad expansion of 
the excuse to have the history game kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suppose, and seeing trailers for the film, my big concern was, Jesus, it looks like they're trying to fit a lot in there. So to, it, does the film feel like something that's trying to do too much? And how much of that do you think is actually the game's problem? Or is it just kind of a, you know, like you kind of hinted at, is it, it maybe is the film's problem that it's trying to be too faithful to the game? I think that is the problem. I mean, I think that the backstory and what you were referring to this kind of centuries long war between Templars and Assassins, the whole kind of introduction to the game series, it really weighs down uh, the narrative in the movie, which, you know, you would expect to be more fast paced. And what it does is it uh, ends up making the the actors uh, into props in the sense that they're introduced, uh, but they only say like a few lines of dialogue uh, before mm-hmm. they're quickly shuffled on to introduce somebody else. And there's not a lot of time uh, spent in actually telling a story. It's all set up. Uh, and it's yeah. all set up towards this uh, kind of uh, this narrative of Templars versus assassins and, you know, what the pieces of Eden is and, uh, you know, what the objective is for Abstergo. And that means that the the story is really never really developed. The characters are never developed. They never really have much to say. Uh, but one of the benefits out of that is that uh, one of our favorite actors, or at least one of my favorite actors, uh, and your fellow countryman, Brendan Gleeson, uh, he probably had the easiest payday of his entire life <laughs> in this film. Uh, he's in the movie uh, for about five minutes, and... Uh, he spends the entire uh, entirety of his uh, role in the film in one spot, in one room, and the only action he takes is to turn around, and that's it. <laughs> and he says, I think, maybe two or three sentences of dialogue. So bravo to Brendan Gleeson, one of my favorite actors, uh, famous, again, for roles in uh, Braveheart. Uh, he was also uh-huh. in a very excellent movie recently called The Guard yeah. uh, about an Irish policeman. And just in uh, lots of stuff and is amazing. Lots of great stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he's really great. And go look him up. And I, I swear, he must have had the easiest payday of his entire life. Because I, he does absolutely nothing in this <laughs> film. I was going to ask you specifically about Gleason, actually. And you had then preempted me. But this film has a really strong cast. And so yeah. is it a question of kind of Fassbender, some Cotillard, and then a lot of people having the Gleason treatment where they kind of drop in and drop out? Like um, That's that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. So there is – so um, there's Jeremy Irons in this film and Marion Cotillard, and uh, they play uh, father and daughter. So uh, Jeremy Irons basically plays uh, the main uh, animus uh, or the main uh, Abstergo antagonist in the film – and Marion Cotillard plays the main scientist that's helping her father trying to explore uh, the past lives of these assassins that they're holding uh, in this uh, Abstergo facility, including Michael Fassbender, uh, but then also uh, Michael K. Williams uh, and several other uh, assassins who are introduced and then either quickly killed or uh, quickly silenced by the script. <laughs> Uh, and then Brendan Gleeson plays uh, Michael Fassbender's father, who we had assumed had been killed at some point, but had actually been uh, living uh, in this Abstergo facility. And another uh, kind of uh, reference to the game is that uh, Brendan Gleeson's character, as well as a number of older assassins, uh, have actually uh, been suffering from the bleed-in effect from the Animus. So if you'll recall from the early games, Assassin's Creed 1 through 3, uh, the assassins who go and use the Animus, uh, they end up uh, seeing images or having flashbacks of events 
uh, that happened to their ancestors begin to bleed into their everyday lives outside of the animus. Right. So that means that they're largely uh, unusable as candidates for further exploration uh, into past lives by Abstergo. So again, that's again, I think this this movie is actually very true. Uh, to the feel and to a lot of the plot points of the games, but then that means that it makes for a very bad movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting thinking of how it switches from one medium to the other because there's no one way to enjoy a game. For me personally, I've always kind of like had to, you know, slog my way through all the Assassin Temper stuff. I don't really care. Um, it's always like, for me, it's a wrapper for the cool history game they made. Um mm-hmm. And so I think there, but you know, obviously there are fans of the game who love that stuff, and it's it's part of the part of the core thing. But it's intriguing to hear you talk about how the film is faithful to the game, but not necessarily super interested in being kind of historical in the way that you and I would talk about. Because yes. you know, in the way, same way that I can slog through parts of the games, and it doesn't really affect my experience too much in like a fifteen-hour playthrough or what have you. I don't really care too much. Assassin's Creed, as we've talked about in previous History Respond episodes on YouTube, you know, has these whole. Um, you know, all this ancillary information where as soon as you meet a character, Catherine de' Medici or someone like that, her bio and some stuff is right there in the game. Um, yeah. And th- that's all. Or if you, run in, if you run into a building, you'll see a kind of description of the building's history, for instance. Right. And that's always been a really interesting aspect of the Assassin's Creed games. And there's something to be said, especially, for example, Assassin's Creed tends to have cool menus because the idea is you'll be navigating these menus, right, to get to this information. And, mm-hmm. of course, a film couldn't really work that work that way. Yeah. And that's really yeah. intriguing to You're me. You're right. Yeah. Um, And you mentioned, you know, kind of running into famous historical figures. There is one very famous historical figure that pops up uh, at the end of the game. uh, Sorry, I'm I'm having having my own bleed in effect here. Uh, And uh, at the end of the movie. uh, So uh, the historical setting, uh, the historical parts of this film, it takes place in 1492 in Spain. So, of course, you have an episode where you run into Columbus. So uh, the whole movie has been set up for Michael Fassbender to use this animus to uh, follow the lives of his ancestor who actually came across the piece of Eden, uh, you know, during this historical time period in 1492. And they're trying to find out where that piece of Eden went. And it turns out that uh, after escaping the Templars oh, in uh, that's Spain in 1492... Uh, he uh, goes to Columbus, who is actually kind of a, a assassin uh, sympathizer, gives him the piece of Eden and tells him uh, to take it with him in his journey to the new world. And uh, they find some <laughs> other documents or some other evidence which shows that uh, Columbus uh, actually kept the piece of Eden with him uh, and kept it to his grave. And so uh, Columbus, is, uh, his grave is actually... Uh, somewhere in Spain, I think it might be Seville. I don't know for sure. Um, but anyways, the the Templars they find out this information by following Fassbender in the Animus. They discover that Columbus probably was buried uh, with a piece of Eden, and so they just go to this cathedral <laughs> in Seville, and they ask the uh, the father there uh, to have access to the. Um, uh, the piece of Eden. Well, they don't even ask. He, they just show up, and uh, the local uh, uh, cathedral director is there with a box and opens it up, and Jeremy Iron takes out the piece of Eden. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole thing. I mean, they, they don't even have to... I mean, I think they were running out of time anyways, yeah. but it's just this, just this grotesque moment of, uh, you know, using a historical figure and then just kind of glossing over any sort of, you know... Uh, 
any sort of major plot points uh, in order to just get to the end, to get yeah. that MacGuffin as quickly as possible. It's just um, so gloriously silly. Like what? What's, <laughs> what's the film? What's the film where Sean Connery shows up right at the end as King Richard Lionheart? And, oh, that's uh, no attempt uh, to explain Hood, it. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, it's just yeah. and it's one of these things where everyone's sitting there going, "What, Sean Connery? What?" Um, <laughs> so, but unfortunately, I'm I'm gathering they didn't cast Sean Connery to be Christopher Columbus, though. That's a one of no. those things. Yeah, see, that would have been a nice, I think, a nice yeah. tip of the hat to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, this movie is um, it's bad, and uh, I you know I say if you're interested. If you're interested in it, you know, wait until it comes out on uh, digital release. Or maybe if it's on sale at some point, uh, definitely a rental. I would not recommend buying it, actually. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's it's disappointing in the sense that I think I think we can all agree on this, that the games are pretty cool. But I think that the movie that comes out of those ty- that style of game doesn't really work. And maybe that should have been obvious to the film crew before they started this project. But, you know, it's definitely obvious at this point now that the movie's been released. And it's, I just think it's very difficult, even with a game over a novel or something like that, where there's this clear target you have to hit. And so what in theory is a work of art is pretty heavily dominated by a commercial goal right from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it can be done. I, I'm disappointed. I was hoping it was going to be good. I'll definitely watch it. The only reason I haven't watched it, we traveled a lot over Christmas. It wasn't out in Ireland while I was there. I would have seen right. it in Ireland if it was. And then we started our intensive term here at Centre, and that's just been my life for the last two and a half weeks. So mm-hmm. um, so I look forward to seeing it, but I, I'm sad to hear it didn't work out. Even with the great uh, Irishman Michael Fassbender, that's two great Irish actors in the film, and they still couldn't well, make is it he, work. Do the, do the Irish claim him, or is he German? Oh, no, he's, I... he's German-Irish, but not only do the Irish claim him, he himself identifies as Irish, to use the language of today. Ah, yeah. I see. Uh, he's okay. from Wexford or something, and he has an Irish accent. So when in the X Men movies, you know, as Magneto gets anger, he sounds more Irish for some reason. So that's, mm. but that's Fassbender's original accent is is what is angry Magneto. That's what mm. he actually sounds like. Okay. So yeah, he's Irish. Okay. Yeah. Well, he his acting job in this movie is abominable. Oh dear. Uh, I'd say that the only convincing parts is when he's breaking glass. There's a lot of scenes <laughs> in which he's breaking glass. I I can't really explain why they thought that was a great aesthetic, but. Essentially, he—I mean—he must—he must break at least five or six dozen windows during this movie. It's actually, actually ridiculous. <laughs> you know, F- Fastbender's a bona fide star, but like, it—you it, know, really, like in several, so many different ways. But it makes you wonder: to what extent was he unable to was he unable to get over how silly he must have felt in a film like this? Because Tom Cruise, for example, is such an amazing film star because he'll never feel stupid. He'll just commit to it no matter what. Like, you look at all the roles uh, that he's done. Yeah. And I wonder, because Cotillard, even from the trailers, you can just tell she's just not interested. Oh, she's she's sleepwalking you know? yeah. through this one. And so to Absolutely what extent could, you know, maybe Fassbender had the same problem. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Sad to hear, but sure, maybe the sequel will be good if it exists, hey, if it ever comes to happen. Hey, I, I left feeling good that I had helped, uh, <laughs> I'd helped, you know, make uh, Brendan Gleeson some money. Uh, so, <laughs> and you know, Assassin's anything, Creed 2 was anything a big, for that guy. Assassin's Creed 2 was a big improvement on the first game. And it's, it's, it's almost a, a decade now, Bob, you talked me into Assassin's Creed 2 years ago. Cause I was like, Oh, I really hated the way the first one ended. And the first one was underwhelming. And the second game was so much better. So, you know, there's, there's precedence in the, 
in the property for the second one to be better than the first. So who knows? Boy, I don't, uh, I don't think that's going to happen unless, <laughs> unless, uh, unless Mila Jolovich, you know, jumps from the Resident Evil series to Assassin's Creed. I don't know how you're going to continue this as a, as a major Hollywood production. And with a Mila Jolovich Assassin's Creed movie, it would definitely be a B movie. Yeah. It would be something yeah. released in January. Um, I don't know if any kind of A-list actors are going to touch this franchise after this after this disaster. Yeah, we're getting an interesting collection of kind of once-off attempts. Like, you know, there's Uwe Ball has his own corner, and then you had the Hall Prince of Persia movie, and now you have the Fassbender Assassin's Creed movie. So we're having all these interesting isolated failures. There's a whole body of work, <laughs> a whole body of work being amassed in video yeah. game movies. Yeah, it just makes you wonder. I mean, is there? I, I just think there's too many divides between those two mediums to make a, a kind of... Uh, a story that translates for both the movies and for video games. I just think that that's it's a bit too difficult. I think, yeah, I would agree broadly. And I, I just think there's a lot of people, even though now there's so many people our age, i.e. people who grew up with games involved in cinema and everything else, but sometimes I feel like there's almost a lack of understanding of what makes the game successful sometimes. Yeah. Um, even though when that's counterintuitive, because I'm sure a lot of people involved in making the movie we're well into the games, but they're just there's still this broad difficulty in getting it. And maybe that is like maybe that's just the success of video games as a medium, you know? Like if you yeah. think about like look at the whole let's play culture where people sit and watch other people play games for a couple hours at a time and stuff and that that's unique to video games. There's so much stuff that's yeah. unique to video games. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, that does it for our Assassin's Creed discussion. Uh, uh hopefully you'll get a chance to see it at some point and you can let me know what your opinion is. Um uh, but I thought we might spend some time now to talk about an upcoming episode for the video series mm -hmm. and also, I guess, the podcast as well. Uh, so, John, what have you been working on for this month's episode? So for this month's episode, we're going to look at Ultimate General Gettysburg, which is a strategy game based entirely around the Battle of Gettysburg. And they currently in early access have a kind of an extended version, basically kind of a campaign, which is Ultimate General Civil War. But Gettysburg is just an intriguing game. I wanted to do a Civil War game and I've just been attracted to this game for a while because of that kind of laser-like focus, you know, and it just seemed to be a lot of potential to ask our guest. So our guest is Dr. Michael Woods from Marshall University um, and he's the author of a book called Emotion and Sectional Conflict in the Antebellum United States and he knows a lot about you know 19th century US in particular and I'm looking forward to asking him a whole bunch of questions I mean partly Bob as an Irishman I'm almost arguably I think that if you were to host this episode or for example if you took the Civil War episode on in a couple of months we'd have two different angles completely because I really lack I watched the Ken Burns documentary two two years ago you know like that's my knowledge of the Civil War um, I didn't grow up learning about it in high school you know I don't I don't know it the way that Americans know it um, but I'm really interested in asking him um, a bunch of different things I'd love to hear him expand on the context of Gettysburg itself but also to talk about Gettysburg which has such powerful imagery in American discourse right up until today and of course the Gettysburg Address and everything how that factors into it being duplicated in the game and then down to things like um, Ultimate General Gettysburg is a very interesting game in the sense that it's almost a replication of a tabletop game in some ways um, it's very reminiscent to me of tabletop wargaming where you know certain ridges and towns and other strategic points have victory points 
and um the i really like the artwork i'm a big fan of it and it really it really brings to mind to me the sense almost of like these tabletop kind of miniature games which is which is also an aspect of kind of civil war hobby 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 uh have to edit that uh you know civil war hobbyism i suppose if you could call it that do you know what i mean which is very very prominent in the u.s and so, so those are things I'm 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 hope, looking forward to asking him, as well as things like the imagery, you know, the use of the Union flag, the use of the Confederate flag, um, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting to, for for me to hear uh, your interpretation of the Civil War in this episode because I think it's it's kind of fun. I'm I'm kind of you know sitting back here. Uh, enjoying your discovery of these kind of uh, civil war elements and this kind of <laughs> civil war narrative because it's again like you said very familiar to me mm-hmm. and you know i think in general the civil war is it's one of those topics that we often kind of forget about as academic historians in the sense uh, that you know there's been so much work done on it already i mean i think uh, out of all of american american historiography the historiography surrounding the civil war is probably the largest i I remember having a military history professor in undergrad telling me that uh, there's been over 50,000 academic works published on the Civil War. Wow. Uh, and, you know, that includes stuff published in the 19th century. And I, I believe it. And, yeah. you know, I think that that fact means that, you know, as academics, we sometimes, I, I mean, I wouldn't say forget about the Civil War, but maybe gloss it over because we know that it's such a huge market for popular histories. Uh, and I think as uh, you know, for history respawn, it's really important to to go through and look at some of the games that have dealt with the the Civil War and to see, you know, how much of that academic work, if at all, is you know being kind of taken up by this type mm-hmm. of series, and you know, how does it present the war in general, and how does you know how do video games deal with uh, this history, which, uh, like you said, still still resonates with so many Americans today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think there's there's a very broad um, discussion, which for a variety of reasons is, is, is persistent in public discourse, you know, a war based on the evil of slavery and people choosing to fight for slavery versus this war of northern aggression type of mm-hmm. minority position, which which has all kinds of historical problems, frankly. Um, but I'm all, yeah, I'm definitely interested in hearing more from Michael and also maybe to touch on this idea of the way that we talk about war, because, Bob, I know that you very nearly embarked on a postgraduate degree in military history specifically, didn't you? Yes. And Ultimate General Gettysburg to me is really intriguing in the sense that, you know, I suppose in this sense, it appeals to a certain kind of a history buff, to use that term, right? It's very it's very much a military strategy game. And, you know, with the names of generals and describing the battles and reinforcements coming in at certain times, it's, it's kind of, it's a, hist- it's a history pedant's dream, uh, to play, do you know what I mean? And it's really focused on what happened when and what kind of guns were used. And I just think, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's invalid. It's just a, it's interesting that the game takes such a strong tack. And I wonder, I just wonder how that, you know, I wonder what kind of opportunities that offers or limits off compared to games that might want to do different things, you know, versus like if Mafia 4 decides to pick up the Red Dead Redemption baton and starts becoming an historical game all the time and, you know, is set in, like, 1860s or something. But that's intriguing to me that Ultimate General General Gettysburg both kind of echoes this kind of classic military history position, but also that kind of... It's placing itself in a certain line in the historical spectrum, which is interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's difficult for me to 
look at that type of history with any sort of distance because I was so close to it at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that, you know, for many scholars, they look at that kind of pedantic approach, that minutia approach to history, and they see people who are, you know, glorifying violence, glorifying war on one hand, uh, but then also trying to avoid discussion of the very difficult... Uh, kind of macro issues that mm-hmm. animated the Civil War to begin with, right? If they, right. if you focus on the soldiers, if you fo- focus on uh, the bullets, the the weapons, the tactics, the minutia, uh, then you can kind of bury your head in the sand when it comes to the macro elements, right? You know, slavery, right. westward expansion, uh, you know, states' rights, all of these big issues yeah. that you know have uh, very complicated historiographical arguments associated with them. So. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting episode. <laughs> oh, I think so, and I, I and I will say, like, I think that um, you know, I think military history is extraordinarily challenging. You know, like when I have students who, especially in undergraduate seminar, who want to write essentially a military history type paper, I'm not a military historian myself. Um, I took classes at undergraduate that I liked and everything else, but there's this difficulty in kind of understanding that good military historians don't just list out you know, at what point such and such a formation came about and so on and so on. They do reach out and bridge, at least in my experience, they bridge to these broader contexts. You know, they're military historians, so yes, they're giving you this minutia, but a lot of these great military history books do more than that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's but it's tough, you know, it is tough. And I, I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to speaking with Michael. Um, he's recommended very highly to me, actually. And um, as someone who's written about the history of emotions and the comparative history of slavery... There's, especially for the podcast episode, which as our listeners now know, will be longer than the video episode. I'm really looking forward to getting into some big questions with him. Cool. Well, uh, I think that does it for our news and notes. I was just wondering if you wanted to maybe tell the listeners what you've been playing outside of historical video games recently. Well, um, Santa Claus got me a PlayStation 4. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. I wasn't expecting it. Um, and I'm in my mid-30s, and I think it was my best Christmas in 20 years. I was very happy. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've been playing Bloodborne. Was it, was it, wasn't your son born around uh, around the holidays? Uh, well, I no, mean... he's born in February, so it's okay. Oh, I'm, I'm off the okay, hook. So yeah. That's enough distance. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I instantly downloaded Bloodborne because it was on sale over Christmas, and it's the only Dark Souls game I haven't played. Um, and then I downloaded Destiny, which is kind of a game I watched from a distance and as a PC gamer the last couple of years I couldn't I couldn't play it. Um and I've been playing quite a bit of it and I, I, I'm a big fan of Bungie combat. I always love the Halo games and stuff. And the other thing that Destiny is interesting to me and the reason I bring it up in the what's what we've been playing segment is because um something the Halo games always struck for me, I was never a huge fan of the Halo stories, but I loved the kind of the setting and the world building that they did. And Destiny feels that way to me, particularly because for those who haven't played Destiny, and this is told to you in the first few minutes of playing, this isn't really a spoiler, it's set in this future. So essentially, the world we live in today encountered these kind of this alien kind of uh, object that helped us elevate, essentially become more technologically advanced. We reached out to the stars, we conquered our solar system, and then there was a collapse. So that then became the golden age, which then collapsed. And Destiny is set 
post this collapse. And so the first kind of real level, for lack of a better term, that you're on is um, the Cosmodrome uh, in Russia on the planet Earth. And this, this this ruined... Old old Russia. Old Russia, yeah. And it's, well, it's this interesting kind of... It's old Russia, but also old Russia that at some point was in some kind of golden space age. And so you're, you're shooting aliens among the detritus of what we are told is once a great spaceport, right? And even though it's complete sci-fi fiction, it's very obviously and very deliberately you know, kind of tapping into 1960s Space Age Russia, right? And all this kind of stuff. And I just find it, I just find that really fascinating. And the game doesn't dwell on it. The game doesn't spend a huge amount of time on it. It talks a lot about the the, the fall of the Golden Age and everything else. But uh, I've just really been enjoying that. It's really been tickling my history nerd funny bone to be kind of, you know, running around a ravaged Earth that is very clearly uh, linking this, this post-apocalyptic world to you know, actual mid 20th century tropes that we're familiar with. Mm, yeah. I've had a similar feeling. I've just uh, finished my first playthrough of XCOM 2, uh, which uh, the XCOM series uh, has you uh, pitted against uh, invading alien force. Uh, mm-hmm. And the setup for XCOM 2 is that uh, in the first game, uh, you know, the story uh, that's presented to you is the, as though that you, you could win this war. But in XCOM 2, it's assumed mm-hmm. uh, that the player lost the war uh, in the first game. So the aliens have taken over control of the Earth. And in XCOM 2, you were leading a guerrilla army, essentially, to overthrow the alien rulers. And uh, what's interesting about this is that, you know, I think video games on the whole do a really bad job of depicting... Uh, empire of depicting resistance to empire, then also depicting decolonization. Right. And I think XCOM 2 actually does a pretty good job of depicting uh, this process, thanks in large part to the fact that uh, they do a, a really good job of uh, kind of uh, portraying the motivations for collaboration on mm-hmm. the part of the human population. So, uh, you know, I think with most video games that deal with empire as a concept, it's very kind of uh, Star Wars in its output. Like mm-hmm. the empire is always bad. The resistance is always good. Whereas in XCOM 2, you do definitely get shades of gray Yeah. in the sense that, you know, the human population, they don't particularly uh, like the aliens who have taken them over. But at the same time, the aliens are offering them all sorts of resources, uh, including uh, medical resources that they wouldn't have previously right? Uh, prior to this uh, alien domination. And then also within your resistance, you have uh, several members who w- used to work for the aliens. And hmm. uh, they often, uh, in these kind of uh, asides while you're building your base, uh, they'll often tell you, well, oh, I do miss the resources that I had under the <laughs> alien watch. Uh, but of, of course, you know, it's good to be a part of the resistance and to try to try to build back uh, human society. So I, f- I like that because it, it, you know, it shows that there is some conflict even within resistance movements. It's not just a a binary black and white situation that there are these shades of gray. And of course, XCOM itself presents really wonderful uh, mm-hmm. tactical combat uh, strategy. And I really heartily recommend it. Yeah, I I texted you, Bob, last week and said, this is more XCOM and I like XCOM. So it's perfect. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think that's a great point. And it's, you know, I think it's definitely a contender for a future episode because when I think back, one of my favorite episodes that uh, we've done was Mickey Brock and Diablo 3, um, just because it was just it was just so cool to take this game that in theory has this completely fantastical setting with little or no connection 
no obvious connection to history and then have an historian come in and say, oh, yeah, no, this completely reflects, you know, uh, the way that we've been creating this, Im- this imagery and everything. And even the opening, I'm still very early in the game, just the, the language of oppression almost, you know what I mean? The yeah. presence of the Advent officers, is, I agree, is all done really well. Um, and actually, just kind of as an aside, as uh, um, there's, a film, there's a TV show on the USA Network called Colony starring Josh Holloway from Lost. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the lost people is heavily involved in it. It is like so much TV now. I'm up and down on the actual show. It has its, you know, it, it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a great show, but it's high points for me. It, it does similar things to what you're saying XCOM 2 does, where it, it, it investigates the fact that collaboration is not, you know, it's not as simple as people being evil, you know, <laughs> or being duped. Yeah. It's much, much more complex than that. Right. I mean, when you take away these kind of notions of collaboration and empire, you are taking away people's agency. You're making it right. seem as though this is not a choice. And in some cases, you know, the imperial power is so overwhelmingly powerful that, you know, there is no choice. But in many more circumstances, you know, thinking back to most of the uh, colonies uh, during the 20th century, there were choices made. Mm-hmm. And in certain circumstances, uh, local powers, local elites made the decision to collaborate, uh, not just, uh, for the good of, you know, uh, a lack of violence or for peace, but also for their own ends. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those ends were what we could call evil, but other times it, it made sense from their perspective uh, to work with this foreign power. So I just appreciate any game that can, can manage to do that because I think, again, video games probably more than most mediums have been really, int- you know, kind of influenced by this this late 60s, early 70s narrative regarding decolonization, which right. places this history in a complete binary, which is just not is not the case. Yeah, and the variety of experiences, you know, French collaborators with the Nazis versus Indian princes mm-hmm. of the 1800s versus, mm-hmm. versus Scots and Irish who became really important um, proponents of the British Empire, you know. Yeah. And obviously yeah. in that latter example, those people were all evil and, and should be... Cast into the dustbin of history. No, but I'm, I'm, te- I'm 900 teasing. 900 years of history. Exactly. 900. <laughs> I mean, I'm teasing, but you know more about that than I do, Bob, in particular with the British Empire. But that's the... Um, and that's that's where, that's the future. That's where games are going. I mean, I, I don't mean to, like, end the podcast on this big, like, evangelist note, but stuff like that really cheers me up and really excites me, you know, to hear yeah. that, it, especially when games that... You know, a game doesn't have to say, this is a game about, about empire to make really interesting statements about those kind of dynamics. And they don't even have to self-consciously admit the connections or even recognize the connections, the connections to be there. Like if you're making a movie about, you know, uh, sorry, a game about, about alien colonial overlords or whatever, then of course you're going to dip into whatever existing knowledge you have and and the books you read are going to be informed by the history behind that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, uh, on that note, on that evangelical note, is that what you're saying, John? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's going to do it for our episode of the History Respawn podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you can, please take the time to rate us on iTunes. Uh, we're told that really helps people discover the podcast. Uh, also, uh, if you haven't already, please check us out on YouTube. Uh, and also, we've got historyrespawn.com, which is kind of right now a repository of all of our previous content. But we're hoping in this next year to use it. Uh, as the basis for uh, publishing articles, publishing new content uh, that won't necessarily appear on the podcast or on the YouTube video feed. So with that said, thank you very much. Have a nice day.